everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Mike, and thank you for joining me for this episode of Amateur All Tours. You can follow the show on Twitter at All Tours Pod, and you can email us with any questions, comments, or concerns at the Amateur All Tours Podcast at gmail.com. This week, we have uh, Jay Skipworth back, uh, continuing this journey through the decades. Jay, man, how you doing? Man, I'm doing good. Glad to be back, and uh, it's time to hit the 1950s, man. So we're we're getting inching closer to when I was actually part of the Earth. We, we I wasn't here during this, uh, contrary to popular belief. But yeah, uh, no, I, I'm excited to be back, man, and uh, always fun to talk movies with you, and uh, especially uh, excited to talk about this one tonight. Yeah, this will be fun. And before we get into, I mean, everyone looking at the title, they'll know what we're talking about. But I will say, uh, this is a week after because we try and clump these recordings together, and. Um, and so last week we did the 1940s episode and then uh, we were about to record the next one and we were off air transitioning. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm really excited to talk about Sunset Boulevard. You're like, oh, you watch Sunset? I'm like, yeah, is that not what we're talking about? And I you know, misread the text. And uh, and uh, so here we are a week later. But, yeah, I initially watched Sunset Boulevard, which I hadn't seen before. And uh, that was a uh, I really enjoyed Sunset Boulevard as like a side a piece on that, uh, continuing mm-hmm. that noir theme and that we. You know, we're still continuing the noir theme, but um, but yeah, one day we got to talk about Sunset Boulevard because that was definitely something very interesting. And I was actually gonna, tr- and I think all fair, I said too, um, watching Sunset Boulevard made me want to rewatch um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is a film that at this moment in time I'm still adamantly feel like I'm missing something, and but everyone's like obsessed with it and loves it, and it's a masterpiece. And I I feel like I'm in the lone camp of. I'm I'm missing something, but the, after watching Sunset Boulevard, it makes me want to go back and watch it. So yeah, one day we'll have to watch Sunset Boulevard or uh, talk about Sunset Boulevard. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And and uh, just uh, just to tease it uh, for folks, the reason we we made that switch at the last is I I didn't realize I had seen Sunset Boulevard until I started rewatching it. And I was like, oh oh yeah, I know this. Yeah, I've seen. I know I've seen this, and I I don't know why I had that conflated with something else in my head. But I knew I had not seen Asphalt Jungle, which was my backup pick. So we, we, we came to this and i um, glad to be able to, to get into this because um, definitely a different kind of film. And I think now we're in an, an era of auteur filmmaker a little bit. Uh, the 1950s really known for that. John Huston, certainly someone that meets that criteria. And uh, I, as far as I can tell, you haven't covered any John Huston here on Amateur Auteurs. So it's good to sort of break the seal on him for y'all. Yeah, no, uh, I I think like my first uh, John Huston film was The African Queen, and I know I've I've referenced it. It's a but, good one to start with, by the way. Yeah, and, I, I think and, that's, that was my first one. Yeah, and and I haven't because uh, I know that was that that was actually going to be uh, African Queen as a side was going to be the first movie that brought me back to the theaters, or initially as I planned because that was like the whole Fathom event, um, like right after COVID. I was like, oh, that's what I want to see. But then you know as life happens it didn't work out but um but you know i do have a big affinity for especially the african queen but yeah this is when i think the auteur filmmaker and the uh the definitive styles are starting to be it we're kind of getting well not not past the uh the like the studio uh stamp on it but now we're starting to see the the artist signature starting to eke through and and kind of become more prominent than um let's say the story or, or the genre or or anything else. It's more like, this is the director. Well, I mean, and they, at this era too, it should be said in Houston often played this, they were the producer, they were the writer, they, it was all of that. And that birthed a generation of filmmakers that 
I grew up with and that well, like Spielberg and Coppola and Lucas and Scorsese and all of those guys, they came on the heels of guys like John Huston and, and, you know, many of that era. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think you could, you can make an argument before like Capra was in that pile. And of, of course, Hitchcock is oh, yeah. one of the, the most you know famous ones, but all those guys will cite these people and as part of their, their film education and, and everything like that. And, you know, uh, Spielberg in particular likes to pay homage to, to these folks and, and talks about them, especially now is that he's gotten a lot older because he is that for so many people, but he talks about the, you know, John Fords and people that, you know, really kind of gave him a, a hazing as it were when he was first coming up, but, uh, it was a great teaching, but yeah, John Houston's career is massive, but you, you know, asphalt jungle was one that, um, I had never just never seen man. And, um, it, I don't know why, because it's right in my wheelhouse. Like it's about a heist and it's a big crew, but it's not really about any of that. It's about the people and the controversial part of this movie. Uh, and it was, it's based on a book we should say too, was Houston wanted to make a bank robbery movie that w painted the villains in a sympathetic light. Um, which was a very controversial thing to do in 1950. Like, you know, those were the bad people. We did not, we did not glorify the violence and things like that. And, uh, you know, he got an all-star cast together to do it uh, of great character actors, not the least of which was Sterling Hayden. Uh, and, uh, you know, a young Marilyn Monroe is in this. I think she's teased on a lot of this stuff now, but she's barely in the movie. But you see her and you kind of see sort of what became the, the reason Hollywood just, you know, jammed on her and a fun story uh the uh one of the guys in the in the gang anthony caruso that's the name of one of my friends on tis the podcast and i had to reach out to him i was like did you have like an uncle or something that was in the movies he said no he said but that's a perfect kind of thing he had heard that before too but he, he got a kick out of it i was like but see, you know it's even in a big city i don't think this is new york i think it's supposed to be chicago but uh i don't know if they, they ever really come out and say but um definitely more midwest but yeah um painting these folks in in a light again where you get to understand their motivation that it's not just to get rich. It's, it's something else. It's, there's a lot of other things at play here. And, and we got to talk about the time too. I mean, we're in post-World War II America, but not like far enough post-World War II where we're in the boom, you know, of the Eisenhower fifties and all of that kind of stuff. This it, still raw for a lot of people. And so there are a lot of people still struggling. It's still, you know, people act like, you know, World War II ended the Great Depression. And in a lot of ways it did. But the Great Depression, like the lifestyle lasted another decade because war rations, we don't we don't understand that. Like we we haven't really lived that. And, in, in, you know, unfortunately, we've been in 20 year wars in, in our lifetimes and most of yours. But. Uah, uh, you know, we didn't we didn't go through the things that the World War II generation went through when when it came to fighting a war because we built a military industrial complex that Eisenhower told us not to, but that's a sidebar. Uh, but you know, we we did that to avoid it again, and this is on the heels of a society that is still reeling from that. It's still kind of getting it back on its feet and figuring out what to do. And you've got people that you know they all fought, they all did something, and then they just came back. And what did they come back to? You know, they broken lives in a lot of ways. And uh, I, I don't know. I found it. I found it such an interesting exercise in like character study, you know, more than like the safe cracking and all the other stuff that they get into, which is kind of fun. And, uh, also, uh, it, it's amazing to me what passed as a fatal gunshot wound in the 1940s and fifties. Whereas now, I mean, I, I just, I just did a, a review of death wish three on a, on a, uh, our friend Jerry's uh, podcast, totally rad uh, Christmas. And uh, which that is a Christmas movie, by the way. Uh, but, uh, there, there's one of the cops, uh, 
takes a, a wound not too dissimilar from the one Sterling Hayden gets in this movie, and he's fine. But uh, as we'll find out, Sterling doesn't exactly make it in this one. So, uh, yeah. But no, I, I I was excited to get into this one, and uh, yeah, I don't think you'd seen it before either. I think this is new for you too. Yeah, no, this is new, and 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 to unpack some of what you said too, like talking about um, the auteurs coming from this time. I also think of like Stanley Kubrick. Um, this is, I mean, talking about like Sterling Hayden, uh, specifically like the killing. I don't know if you've seen the killing. I have, I have. Oh, yeah. yeah. You, you Back, have yeah. Whole, yeah, Kurt, uh, yeah. I would say Kurt, Kurt and I did that one. And uh, yeah, I, boy, I had a lot of feelings of the killing when watching this and that's not so much a Kubrick movie as it's just a, a director doing oh, yeah. a job uh, because there's nothing really Kubrick about it, but it, it's a good movie and it's yeah. a great watch. So yeah, because I was looking up like, as I was watching, it's like, okay, when did, especially with Sterling Hayden here, I'm like, when, when did these movies come out? Um, because it plays a very similar character in both of these. It's only like four, four years, five years apart, I believe. Uh, the mm-hmm. kill, killing yeah. was 56. So yeah, this yeah. was like five, six years apart. And, yeah. um, and I also, it's also interesting seeing like, you know, that the bad guys are glorified because it, it's interesting that like they're, they're, you think of some of the popular films like of the decades before you, th- I, I think of like Scarface of the thirties, right. Howard Hughes, and then uh, like public enemies and Bonnie and Clyde. And, you know, these are, very regarded at least characters of uh of like of cinematic fiction but very popular in themselves but you know but this was still something that that pushed the envelope and pushed the bar and raised the bar for what uh how we could view anti-heroes criminals at that um Mm -hmm. almost like blue collar criminals at that too Um, yeah except with, with the with the with this uh the doctor character uh he is i think he was more of the the white class uh or white collar criminal like mm-hmm. the heist but he employed the the blue collar man get it thugs yeah. yeah i mean you get i think you think they say well you need a hooligan on this on this <laughs> you know i was like well that's a term we don't use anymore but yeah, well I'll, I'll like, i'm bringing that one back i'll start using that but uh, no i mean i, I think about more modern cinema and i'm talking about talking about movies that are 20 something years old so that's my idea of modern but i mean like something like oceans 11 which is very much a caper but a fun caper and then something like heat which is much more serious and kind of you know very you know drab not drab but dour in in a way it's a michael man thing and uh but you know this gave birth um all of these things of course are from stuff like scarface and and all that that you've mentioned before saint valentine's day massacre and all that stuff but this is a genre that hollywood has just never gotten over I will say, you know, they've got kind of gotten over Westerns and now that's more of like a television thing because Yellowstone has given some rise to that and stuff. But heist movies are in every decade, like, you know, bad guy movies, gangster movies, whatever you want to call them pop up in every decade and they kind of reinvent as they go along. Like, you know, the, the 30s and 40s ones were all about the, you know, again, hey, you see, you know, the wisecracking guys, the Ever G. Robinsons and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then in the 50s, we got this kind of look at it, which led into the 60s versions of it, which then led Coppola and company to do The Godfather, which was a very different take on the mafia movie, right? And, and the bad guy movie. And then you get into the 80s and you've got, it was more about cops and robbers still, but it, it, we started flipping the perspectives. And then the 90s, we went back to it. And so we just keep going on and on. And then, then they become comedies. The Muppets did one, for goodness sakes. Uh, by the way, the best best Muppet movie, by the way, is the great Muppet caper. I will stand by that. Um, but, I mean, really, like all, all of um, 
all of these things just keep continue to recycle in Hollywood. And so it's neat to see that because we've talked about that, uh, particularly with some of our earlier episodes of like, oh, now I see all the things that are ripping that off or aping yeah. that or paying homage to it. And this movie is, is no different than that in that it sets up so many standards like that. And I think you've, you've hit something that the Sterling Hayden character in particular uh, is the quintessential anti-hero as as dick handley it's this guy that like if he could just get a break you feel like he would he would go straight he'd fly right because that's what he tells you but in reality he's a monster and he would never fly right this guy would never be straight but that's the fun part of the anti-hero when you when you kind of you know, peel them back. I, I've, I've had a lot of conversations around specifically like Walter White and, and Saul and, you know, those kind of characters. It's like, oh yeah, you know, if they you know, could have ever gone well for them. I'm like, no, they're psychopaths. That's the point yeah. is that they're hiding in plain sight. That's the, that's the, the, the interesting part of that character. And that's the same as this, is that this guy is, oh, you just feel like if you could ever get the right break, you know, he's got this girl that absolutely adores him for no reason at all, but she just does. And he, he treats her terribly too poor doll uh but i mean she just wants to be with him and he just wants to go back to his family's horse farm but there's no way on earth he's ever getting that back you know like you you can never go back but guys like this get caught in that cycle and so i don't know it, it was it was neat to watch and to see that because again i've seen it redone 500 times and that's like so we did mention sunset boulevard it's interesting especially watching them like pretty much back to back and that like sunset boulevard is like this rich tapestry with many different angles and like nuance to like the characters and like the writing as well and also just like some strange bizarre stuff that you see on there but this i feel like is very clear cut but it's also like way more brutal in its depiction of of like nuance um like mm-hmm. even like so we we start off with the police like an empty streets which i i think it's definitely like chicago or like midwest but it also i was getting like heavy seven vibes where it's like unnamed mm-hmm. midwestern metropolitan city that's crime ridden right. and uh we start with the police like combing this these uh deserted streets but it's like kind of like the slums like the ghettos areas mm-hmm. and there's one guy walking throughout without with not with not even like looking around like he's just sauntering through and we walk into a um a store like a storefront uh corner store and uh the 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 owner the the guy behind the counter without saying any word opens the ca- catch register and slips a gun in shuts it and turns up the turns up the music and i was like oh man talk about setting the scene and just like non there's like no dialogue outside of just police chatter which is interesting especially with the ending monologue which we'll get Mm -hmm. into as well with just how much because it's i think it's it's all different types of calls it's not just like oh we're looking for this one guy this happened i think it's squeaked in there but there's a lot of different chatter going on and, and Houston will tell you this too. You can thank a lot of that to Hal Ross and the cinematographer here, which it, if people don't know the name, you know, his most famous movie, the wizard of Oz, which <laughs> has a lot of dialogue in it and has a lot of music in it, but is an, an extreme example of visual storytelling. And, and it's time was, was completely groundbreaking. And, you know, for the 40 something years, this guy worked in Hollywood was amazing. And this is sort of you know, many years after you know he had started and those kind of things like that and the way that that he and houston have these close shots on people um and they're you know the flat angles and and all of that stuff i i really thought you know 
other movie would have panned out and showed you the whole room of a conversation between people, but they're zooming in on them and wanting you to watch their face. And it gives a lot of, to the actors too, to do a lot with their face and with their hands. And I was just sort of caught up in all of that. A couple of times I had to like rewind and go, wait wait a minute, I I lost what you were saying because I was just so caught in the frame, you know? And um, I mean, again, it's a black and white movie too. So this is all shades and and lighting and, and stuff like that. And to be able to do that and to translate it forward, you know, some 70 years later, and I'm still geeking out over it. I mean, like, this is, this is an achievement. I mean, it, this is an amazing looking film. And I mean, it made money. It should say and it got a pretty good critical response, but, um, you know, it did, it didn't really get the award swing that something like Sunset Boulevard did, or, or, you know, our last movie did, you know, that just didn't have that for it. Um, I think Golden Globes is about as high as it got nominated for, but you know, and it got some Academy Award nominations, but nothing for the acting. Uh, but, but they did recognize, uh, Rawson and, and Houston for what they did, which I think is pretty amazing. Yeah. And I, after like, so after we get that moment, uh, it's more, um, like, I think there's something being said about like police brutality because there's a whole they they yeah. bring the guy in they rough they quote unquote rough him up for what they could show, and then um they do the police lineup which is super reminiscent of um Usual Suspects um except just not as you know not as much comedy infused which was also at that was supposed to be super mm-hmm. serious and then they just started like farting and they were just like making fun of the scene and and the, and that was what we see but um but. Yeah, the whole lineup scene that gets, you know, more it's like natural exposition of like who this character is. Uh, the other two, we don't it doesn't really matter. But then we get to uh, certainly Hayden here. And um, but I I really do like what we're seeing here. Also, when we get the <laughs> with the police commissioner commissioner, he's just like, you're not being brutal enough. Crack some heads, arrest people. I don't care what you have to do. You know, yeah. don't tell them you're coming like beat people up intimidate them to enforce this like this martial law of we have to clean up the street you know i don't care what you have to do and which is interesting in that especially compared to the ending statement which the movie isn't about like police brutality or anything but it's interesting because that's where i was like oh are we gonna go talk about policing and just the methods of policing in the 1950s where you know they were billy clubbing people if you just mouthed off to them like there oh, were no yeah. body cams. There were no like even like mm-hmm. listening to my 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 grandfather. He was um, uh, he's a retired NYPD narcotics homicide detective, and he has never said that he's like Billy clubbed anyone. But you can just I'm like he definitely did. Like I don't want to. I'm not. <laughs> I, I'm not trying to say that that's right. No, um, no. But just listening to I'm... like the stories and the detectives that he worked with. Maybe not necessarily him, but he definitely worked with some hard characters that would definitely you know turn the other way take him down an alleyway and you know you know give well, him yeah, a slap I, on the head and i and i chuckle at that only not not at the situation but more at the fact that like it's just it, it's amazing that like you, you see accepted. so through that like you just and and that because you know again i i think i may have grown up in the last generation that still trusted that and i don't know why we did because gen x doesn't trust jack but you know we, we just sort of accepted it for what it was maybe it was more of a we couldn't do anything about it so we just you know whatever but uh yeah i i um I think it's interesting how they they juxtapose the cops here as being brutal and also relatively incompetent, Um, which that was also a very controversial thing to do because you could do that in a Marx Brothers movie because it was a joke. But doing it in a serious movie, that that takes it up a different level. And 
again, I, I want to emphasize this was written by W.R. Burnett, the novel was at least. And the thing that, that Ben Maddow and, and John Houston kept from that was that in written literature, and this has almost always been the case, that written literature is, is the art form that can get away with pushing the boundary the most um, because you have to actively participate in reading a book. You yeah. Know, you can't just see a picture. You can't watch television, watch a movie at this point. You know, those are kind of passive entertainment uh, genres, though I, I would argue that some films do ask you to be actively involved, but another day. But a book, you, you, I mean, you can just blow through one if you want and you remember nothing about it. But most of the time, you kind of get engrossed in a book, especially if it's written well, right? And that pushes forward a lot of change in society, the written word. That's always been the case, like across human history. So that nothing new there. But I, I do think it's it's important to note that this wasn't just the director's vision. This was coming from a source. And they, they stay pretty true to it from all I could tell. I didn't go and read the book, but I just read you know, different synopses of it. And they're pretty close in it. But just spending a lot more time on, on these folks. And again, setting up the cops as just sort of the brutal authoritarian government. And again, talk about how controversial that is, Mike, for the time. You know, we had just defeated fascism you know, as part of the allies, right? And now we were anti-communism, right? Because that was the, the Cold War starting. And to come back home and realize that our authorities are not all that different than some of those regimes, that's that's not something that just got talked about. Nowadays, we could take that for granted because that's every day, right? We, we hear, you know, multiple discourse uh, every day. But back in 1950, that wasn't something that got talked about much. And th that puts this film in a different place um, because the fact that it was successful um, tells me one of two things. Either people didn't get it, which I hardly believe, or people did get it and they responded to it in a way because they were living this life. Like people in the big cities saw like, mm, yeah, officer friendly is not exactly friendly. Yes. And that got invented on the heels of all of this stuff. Yeah, this is an officer crub key here. We're not. <laughs> no, no, we're not doing that. Yeah, exactly. So, And it is important to know for anyone that the, the I guess the unofficial like asphalt jungle like definition as I just have pulled up here, uh, an overcrowded, unsafe, or crime-ridden urban in environment or city, characterized by the congestion of large buildings and roads. So uh, mm -hmm. this is definitely because I, I, I guess I, I, I could infer that's what they meant by asphalt jungle. It's just this city and, that is just lawless and chaotic. And, yeah, and it's su it's such a piece of irony too that the 1960s television show that sprang from this thing was about the cops taking down organized crime. I'm like, what well, what a switch in perspective ten years gives us, you know? Because this movie is all about the criminals and how, like, the cops are enforcing the law, sure, but their methods are it's hard to get on their side. So th that's the the interesting about this movie. And I wanted to ask you, like you can't really get on the side of anybody in this movie. And that makes it hard. That's, that's a hard thing to ask your audience to enjoy something, engage in something, and they have no one to root for. You know, I've, I've often dinged movies for like, there's no one here I care about. I want them all to die, you know? And so it's, it's hard to, if we don't have an avatar for the audience. Um, but I don't know. What would you make of that? Yeah. I mean, I think starting off, I was like, man, everyone here is just awful. And just yeah. a sense of like it's like it's hard to root for anyone, but it's when I think it's the charisma of Sterling Hayden mm -hmm. as Dix, and um and I definitely um the the uh, Doc character the what is it the German Doctor Irwin Reiden Schneider um yeah. he I think since he's so professional and yeah. he's just so like this is what we're doing you know there's he he's very 
this is the job. This is what we're is doing. Is it cold? Yeah. yeah. It, it, and it's just mm-hmm. like, yeah, things can happen. And even just the, the descriptions of just, you know, we're not going to tell them, we're not going to tell the, the crew what the take is. We're just going to give them, here's the flat rate, and you're not going to argue with it because it's mm-hmm. more money than you will ever see. So even if right. we pull a half a million, a million dollars, you know, we're not going to tell you that. Um, but the one thing, so it's, I think it's when the chemistry of the leads start to come in that, uh, and then you kind of get the nuance of like the Louis character. He's a family. Again, that's, I, I just keep thinking of like the characters in Heat, that they're family men that are doing this for the family, but despite them being psychopaths and like engaging in, crimi- in criminal activity. Louis doesn't really strike me as like a psychopath. He's more just like, this is the best way I can provide for my family here. Um, now, obviously yeah. there's a, uh, there's some consequences for for engaging in this, but um, so I think once the chemistry starts to come, I I start to uh, start to root for you know it's like Ocean's Eleven. You're like, yeah, I want to see you guys do this, and it's also interesting that they don't. It's not that uh, the jewelry heist is not uh, like we're in Ocean's Eleven to try and get you on the sides of Danny Ocean, other than them being very char- uh, charismatic. Is it's like, oh, it's yeah. this big bad. Uh, casino executive that will destroy your life like he is the ultimate villain so it's almost like a robin hood well not robin hood in the sense of like we're just taking from the big bad guy who is going to you know make up this loss in like a year anyway or like right. a week at, at, at most um but here it's interesting interesting how it's just like no i have a lead and we're gonna hit this to get as much it's just purely focused on uh well greed as anyone would do a uh, mm-hmm. a job like this but um and, and well, I mean everybody the- has their has their motivation right everybody does and, and Hanley tells us his is to try to buy back the the horse farm or if his family lost it you know after his, his father's death and this stuff and he tells this story and he tells it a couple of different times about you know how he he once broke this horse and all this kind of stuff and then he loved it and what you find out is that that's actually not even true it's just sort of his romanticized memory of his childhood that he's told himself enough times that it's become the story. And he, he eventually admits to doll that like, no, it never happened. I just always dreamed of it that way. I mean, you realize this guy's life has always been hard since his father died and it's never gotten easy and it never will because he dies, you know, in, in this film. And in some ways you, you kind of want him to like, you want, everybody gets their comeuppance. We should say like these you know, people go to jail, people die. And, and our, I guess our main character dies too in pursuit of the one, you know, just to see the farm one last time. And he gets to see that, but he, but he dies because he has to pay for the mistakes he's made and that, you know, all of it comes due at some point. And one other thing too, before we get into the the story is one thing that I was noticing subconsciously. And then my brain was like, Hey, there's no music being played really at all um, mm. until like the end, which is when it's, I, th- I feel like it's, that's more of like the, the trope where it's like this big swell of, of strings. But if I remember correctly, there's not really a whole lot of score throughout, which I is so subtle. refreshing because it's, yeah, it's either really subtle or it's not there, but they're just letting the actors chew the scenery and just letting the scene breathe. They're not manipulating the scene with music. They are letting just the writing and the actors and 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 the filmmaking dictate the story not so much the or the emotion but not so much the 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 music yeah i mean that's what music tends to do is to to sort of set the emotional tension in the in a film and it can be done really well it can be done really manipulatively you know it, it does a lot of things but in films like this it's so centered on 
just having little bits of sounds in the backgrounds and things like that, just to kind of keep tempo going. But you're, you're paying attention to these guys lay this story out. And when they're breaking into the safe, it's a very quiet scene, even though they're drilling and working through nitroglycerin and all this other stuff, because they're, they're trying to keep as low a profile as possible, knowing that, you know, they're going to set off a ton of alarms and you know, the cops are going to come and all this stuff. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, it, it really is. And, um, I, I don't know. I, I love um, how everything seems to be going right, except their plan is completely unraveled almost immediately. Because when they set off the big charge, of course, all the alarms set off. They cut the alarm at the building, but they didn't think about everything next to it, right? So it blows all that out. They, you know, they hit a guard. He shoots one of them in the process. So they got to drag that guy out of there. And they get away, but the police are right on their tail, like immediately. And this when you realize, like, this movie has set this up. And for a movie that is, it runs pretty, pretty, you know, fleet for something that's an hour and 50 minutes long, it, it sets a ticking clock, you know, almost immediately. Like it, it's the build up to the heist. Then we get the heist and usually the heist is like the third act. Right. But this is early. No, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's like, it's the end of the second act because the heist yeah. is over and like, shit, there's still an hour left of this movie. Right. And but, the hour is that manhunt. And, yeah. And yeah. that's the manhunt. And also all the, uh, the, the, what, what's the word? The backstabbing that mm-hmm. we see here in that yeah, yeah they're all going to screw each other over is there's this, a character that we haven't been mentioning um mm-hmm. the i guess the supposed uh backer who is not really backing the heist um the uh, I, is he a lawyer i i think yeah, he's a, he's an attorney yeah he's he's a disgraced attorney who's losing or has lost most of his fortune and is desperately trying to hide it from his you know, ailing wife and his family and things and yeah i mean yeah he's he's the uh, you know, to use the Ocean of Eleven thing, he's the Reuben of this thing, but with none of the you know redeemable qualities of Elliot Gould. So he's such a he's just such a sleazeball. I mean, you know, that's he's he's thing. sleeping with well, Marilyn Monroe on the side, and, yeah. and and he immediately is trying to figure out ways to. So um, the the Doc character comes to him as like the financial backer, uh, give has this big plan of, you know, he says, you know, it's, we're going to, we need three ruffians, hooligans, uh, that we're only going to pay a fixed rate and we're going to make off the most, especially as I have the plan, you're going to be backing this. I need $50,000. And, and it's all, we're going to, we're going to pay them this much because I feel like we don't tell them because of the greed, the greed that can, uh, that's going to that's going to dismantle the entire thing. It's like, oh, the irony is like, you know, the reason they're doing this is for greed. They want more. The reason mm-hmm. Doc is because he doesn't trust this this um this lot this Lon character, I think is his name or something. I forget is I know Marilyn Monroe calls him Uncle Lon. Um mm-hmm. uh, but anyway, like she he doesn't trust him, but he you know, he is like, oh, well, he's going to supply this and or supply the funds that we can get this going and and then, you know, Lon is saying, "Oh well, we're. I'm actually. Hey, don't go through the fences. I'll be the fence. You just give me all the money, and mm-hmm. I don't give, and I won't give you anything in return. Just trust my word. My word is my bond. And then he was just gonna go run away to Cuba, Argentina, somewhere. And um, but I, I just love how this idea of just greed of amongst the higher ups and and the the planners, and it just that is ultimately one of the major downfalls of everything." Right. Well, I mean, it's, it's the, the story is that these guys that are just looking for the leg up or whatever, because they can't work for the man, 
are still working for the man, mm-hmm. you know, along the way. And there's, you're still under the, the, the thumb, like there's nothing you can do to get out of it. And I mean, in some ways, I mean, it's a really pessimistic kind of story. Cause it's like, well, what do you, what do you do? You know, well, you, what you do is you go straight and you don't, you don't commit crime. That, that's the, the truth. But in nothing, that's not an option for these guys, at least the way they see it. And they think like, yeah, this is going to be the big break that gets us away. gets us free. You know, pay off my debts, you know, all this kind of stuff and get the family farm back, whatever. And it, it unravels for every one of them in one way or another. And, you know, we should say too, like, you know, Doc's the one that ends up going to prison because Emmerich, the, the bankrolling lawyer, which in today's money, that's about 600 grand. So that's a lot of money he's laying out, you know, there on, on the limb to get a payoff of several million back. Um, he ends up getting arrested at the mistress's house, Marilyn Monroe in that, in that great small role she's got, but he weasels his way to make a phone call to his wife and shoots himself. And I'm like, well, you talk about something really controversial in 1950 suicide in a movie like Romeo and Juliet do that, but it's considered romantic. But this guy, like, I'm like, wow, I, I was I was blown away that that happened because I thought like, no way, like he's going to he's going to go blazing at him and then they'll shoot him down. But like, no, it's it's not how it goes. And even Doc, like they make a joke about it. He was like, ah, he overreacted. He could have got on those charges. He could have got out in two years. Like they make a joke directly after he shot right. himself. And you're like, whoa, that's even the night, even today's standards. That's like, whoa, that's, that's a it's, lot. So, and again, it's so mm-hmm. cold and calloused and it's like. Oh, you know, if he just listened to the plan, it would have been fine. Because even Doc, like, ex- almost expected this to happen. Even mm-hmm. though he admits, like, I wish, I wish this contingency didn't have to be put in place. I see it because then there's the whole, um, the private investigator Bob Bran- Branham. He he yeah. comes in and he and I love that sequence when, uh, you know, they're they're after the heist and they are tr- uh, trying to make the exchange and. Uh, Alonzo, the, the, the lawyer, he's trying to talk him, you know, smooth talk them into leaving the jewels. And, oh, I'll get you your money. Don't you worry. And the and we have the half-drunk private eye who pulls out a gun and says, nope, your way's not working. How about you just give me the the jewels? And we have uh, Dix that says, you know, he's got us. He's got us. And he's yeah. like, oh, you're not as stupid as you look. And he whips out a gun and shoots him cold in the chest. And there's an awesome shot of just he runs to the he he runs the door uh, the wall whips out his gun. It's such a quick whip pan, and then that's mm-hmm. where you know we get the the mortal shot in the in the belly. Um, but it's just it's that was a really electric scene, and then it just again just the backstabbing and the the dialogue comes out I'm like oh this is where we're going because like we said after the heist there's an hour left of the movie, and then that happens. I'm like okay this is this is where we're going. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that that's where it goes. I mean, they dump the body in the river. The police start to go after Emmerich at that point. They find all the places he owes money to. So they know, you know, that, that who else could have bankrolled this? Well, who do we know that's that's got problems right now? Obviously, this guy. And, and in one way, like I said, I called the cops incompetent earlier, but it's not really fair. They're sort of portrayed that way, but they're actually doing like decent police work. I mean, they, you know, they lead down the logical train because they know in their city, like, well, who's one who's got the money to fund this and then who are the ones that would have done it? You know, the usual suspects as it were. And so, uh, yeah. And I didn't, I'd never thought about, and I haven't heard anything from, uh, I wouldn't listen to Singer talk about anything, but I haven't heard anything Christopher McQuarrie ever said about this being an influence on him, but I imagine it had to be in some way. Cause he's kind of an old Hollywood, you know, film nut too. And so I, I can imagine that this was something that he would have, have, pulled from or at least pulled some inspiration from even unintentionally if he had seen it um, because there's so many parallels to 
usual suspects in this, except for, you know, all the twists and, and yeah. everything, which made that fun. But yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, I really think it's neat though, that they, how they go through this and, and there's, you know, again, there's a, some sort of plan about, you know, insurance company that's going to pay them off and all this stuff. And I'm like going, Oh, did you have Dumble indemnity on it? Because I was just curious. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was, was interesting too. It's just like, Oh, just go set, go set up the insurance. I'm like, wait a minute. How is that going to work? That's, He's just gonna right. go. Oh, I ha- I know who has jewels. They'll pay. They'll pay. Uh, that yeah, that was like a really weird of just like. I mean, we'll the plan is thin. We there. we got to say like they didn't have a good like fence plan to get rid of these jewels and stuff. Like it was more like you know the underwear gnomes in South Park. It's like still underpants, third step profit, middle <laughs> step. Or it's or it's like the joke in Ocean's Eleven that Brad Pitt makes. Like, yeah, no, there's a lot of money in those ceremonial head masks if you can move them, which yeah. you can't. And that, I mean, that's and he's right. That's why you still cash. You know, mm-hmm. you don't still, you know, you still jewels or whatever. Like, oh, that's great. How am I gonna do anything with that, right? And so it's yeah, it's part of the. I, I guess it's part of the charm of this though is to realize that everybody here is scheming for something that takes like the perfect inch of you know clearance to make it work and there's no way on earth they're going to get it to work like you know anybody logically can realize like oh there's you know there's no way this can this could ever happen good for anybody it's always going to break bad for them yeah and and i have to say too the the heist is actually like a lot of fun i love mm-hmm. these how you were saying how silent it is and you just are listening to the drill bits and and like and then that's it's also great too cuz even like it's little like well he plans it like okay at 11:54 we're going to be here and then this is going to happen that's going to happen i'm like that's this isn't baby driver you know it, or or not baby driver i'm sorry drive where he's like drive. you got 5 mm-hmm. minutes and if you're not back in 5 minutes i'm gone um this is like at 1154, you're going to be here and I'm going to be here. I'm going to do this. I'm like, there's no way this plan is going to go exactly as planned. And, uh, you know, the drill, it's when the, it's when the first drill bit breaks, I was like, Oh, okay. And I love that, that tension. He's just like, Mm -hmm. ah, drat. It's like, what? Oh, the drill bit broke. I'm like, Oh, just as something as simple as a drill bit breaking. I was like, okay, this is the start of the crescendo of, the downfall of this heist. <laughs> yeah. It's, Where, yeah. It's because when they have to use the explosive, it sets off all the, yeah, all of that. Like it, it's just unravels one piece at a time, because again, they, even though these are criminals and they're quote professional criminals, they're not really like good at any of this. It's a haphazard plan. It was put together very quickly and you see all of the mistakes that happen and then again as it starts to unroll like you realize that dix is probably the only one that's got the common sense to realize i I need to be armed especially when there's this stranger that walks in the door and pulls a gun on all of us like well i'm I'm clearly the only one prepared for that today and like you said that that was a great scene and i I love sterling hayden's action he kind of like turns his body like he's trying to do like a James McAvoy from Wanted or something and move out of the way of a bullet or something like that, or, or a Keanu Reeves in, in Matrix. And of course it hits him, but he's like, oh, it's, it's just a flesh wound or whatever. And we find out later, like, oh no, he's bleeding to death. And we're like, what a horrible, slow, painful way to die. And uh, oh, we talked about last time with double indemnity. We, we kind of you know wondered, like, is, is Fred McMurray dying? In the, that scene. And, and what's interesting there is like the shoulder, probably not so much the belly, yeah, that's yeah, the side. Like yeah. You nick, yeah, you, you know nick, this. You nick yeah. a bow. Ooh, you're and that's not good. Um and uh and it's interesting too that when Louis gets shot and he's at like at his home and and she's like, 
and he asks for water, and the wife's like, he wants water, and the Gus character says, no, don't give him water. Like, he, he could have there's something wrong in his stomach, and the water is going to make it worse. Like, oh, mm-hmm. that's, I mean, I'm not a trauma, do- I'm not a trauma nurse. I don't, I mean, but someone in shock that uh, if, you know, if there, he clearly needs fluid, drinking water is not going to help that. I'm like, he needs a doctor and now, <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. I guess the doctor didn't make it in time because Louis, uh, they do, they have his, uh, his funeral inside his home, I guess. But, um, but yeah, no, that, that, uh, that gunshot wound, I was like, oh, because at first I thought he just got nicked, but he's like, oh no, the bullet went through and it's all, and it's doing its own job elsewhere. And I'm like, wait, so it went in and out? That's you, you might want to get that get that fixed there, buddy. Oh no, totally. And I mean, the the fact that he's just trying to run away with it and he passes out at the at the railroad crossing with Doll, and they have to take him to the doctor. And I love that doctor's line when he <laughs> when he gets away. He's like, he doesn't have enough blood in him to keep a chicken alive. And I was like wow like, even, like in... he comes in and they're like well, what happens he calls an auto accident and he's like okay and he get and he's giving him a fluid bolus to you know yeah. help him get some fluid and he goes in the next room he's like yeah get connecting the sheriff we got a guy who walked in with a gunshot wound you right come over here right now it's like oh his 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 girlfriend his wife saying it's an auto accident he like clearly sees through the bullshit i mean duh he's fucking shot that's exactly that's not like a gunshot is a very distinctive looking thing that's not an auto mm-hmm. accident um yeah i mean there's there's no way you could mistake the the two at all and uh, the fact that he thought he could pull that over on him is again it shows the hubris of these guys to think that they're so much smarter than everybody else and they're really not you know it's like, no this is it's obvious what happened to you and um I wanted to ask you though, like the, you know, he does kind of get away pretty easy, and that was the part of it that I thought um, maybe the killing got right. You know that this this the fact that he gets back all the way to the Kentucky farm or whatever, which granted isn't that far away from Illinois, so it's it, like it's a believable drive maybe. But uh, if, if we're assuming this is Chicago or whatever, but I I kind of like the way the killing goes at the end. So to spoil that, you know, he the, the he walks out of the airport and the cops are there waiting on him, and it's like ah, what's the difference? You know, it's like he just knows, like he's under arrest. I kind of thought he was going to get stopped at like the town's edge or something. I don't know. What what did you think? Yeah, I thought he wasn't going to make it. I thought it was going. That mm-hmm. was like the tragedy. Was like he got on, like he could see the farm, but he never made it. And then they they pull him out and he dies and in, in the stretcher or something and. And uh, it'd be in the ambulance and he has some final like rosebud final like final words, but he gets there. Um, but it, I guess I, I thought he got there because they literally got every other person involved. Either they're dead. Uh, I know Cobby, who was the like the middleman, he who ends up fronting the entire uh, he gets manipulated in the fronting the entire heist. He's in jail. He's like mm-hmm. a he becomes a, a fink, which is also a <laughs> kind of a funny um, mm-hmm. term of the age of a rat he he, yeah. he just informs on everyone and and then gus he comes in and i and i love how their inner their altercation inside the uh in the jail or even when he's getting picked up when he's on the phone with um with dicks he's like hey you need like you need to get out you know they're rounding everyone up and then the police are in the background like knocking on the window and he's like oh hey i'll let you right on in a second he's like yeah i got the police here you're gonna need to get the hell out of dodge he's like yeah yeah i'll let you in so they're in jail um they end up picking uh doc who at who what's interesting that he found um i thought that was going to go a little bit somewhere with the german uh taxi driver and they're speaking german and it's like oh hey i'll buy your beer you know i'll schmooze you if you'll just drive to cleveland and get without asking any questions um 
because even when he gets so they're at a diner, there's some young kids, you know, swing dancing. He gives them nickels, and that kind of holds him up. That's what kind of gives the police. He's distracted by the young, the like the youth uh, dancing, uh, just like the jovial energy. That the police come, they look through the window. And he doesn't get out, and they kind of ID him there. And when they leave, the police are kind of ra- like roughing him up, and and they uh, and even like the German driver's like, "Hey, you're making a big mistake. You know, don't. They, you know, this is my fare. You know, he's a nice guy." And then the police are like, "No, you stay out of this." And then it doesn't really go anywhere. And when they jingle the coat, I guess maybe I was just thinking of Ocean's Eleven. I thought that maybe like Sterling Hayden had the diamonds and like what they were jingling. Cause he, he gives them like $5 or like $20 worth of, uh, he's like, Hey, I need this in nickels. And I thought that inside the coat was like nickels or something that they were jingling. And then I thought the big reveal would be, Oh, he has the diamonds like in his coat pocket or something. And, but no, they no every, no one gets, everyone gets their comeuppance and they get away at the end. Or oh, they yeah. don't get away, I should say. Yeah, they don't, they don't get away. Everybody gets what's coming to them. And that's the, the I guess, the interesting part of this is that they all get caught. They all go to jail they, or they die or whatever. You know, they, they all are ruined in this. And, you know, Dix gets his sort of gets his wish he gets back to the farm one last time and he you know he falls over and his horses come over to kind of what's going on with this and while doll runs up to the house to hope you'll go get help but he's clearly dead so there's no help for him anymore and you know in some way you feel like well that's kind of all he wanted anyway because remember what he was chasing was a fantasy of the memory of that he was never going to get that back there was no way and it wasn't like it was for sale even and he just wanted to see it one last time and get out of that city into the the countryside and all of that stuff. So I, I loved it. I thought it was, it was a really compelling end. And uh, even though the, the cops are supposed to be the, you know, their little, uh, their methods, uh, shall we say again, are questionable. Uh, and they definitely have a very strong attitude about the power of rehabilitation and whether or not it would ever work. Um, I mean, they're the ones that win in the end and they get the big monologue to sort of tell us yeah, all I that I, I took that very much like out of, out of like psycho. It's almost like that the same with the psychiatrist comes in and lays out everything about Norman Bates. Well, I was going to say, what's your take on that whole like final like monologue? And and I have like the final quote, which I, I liked, but it's why I thought interesting in the beginning. I'm like, oh, we're going to have like a tale about police brutality in the 50s because we start with like all the radio chatter mm-hmm. and just them being like, be brutal. We need you to info- like, oh, you know, people are intimidated by you, make them intimidated. And we end with the police commissioner commissioner saying, essentially, people are being cheated, robbed, murdered, raped. And that goes on 24 hours a day, every day in the year. But and he turns on all the radio chatter and he says, mm-hmm. you know, but suppose we had no police force, good or bad. Suppose we had and he turns them all off. Silence he says nobody to listen, nobody to answer. The battle's finished. The jungle wins and the predatory beasts take over. Like that seems like something that it, it's obviously like he's saying the the ends justify the means but this movie is not about police brutality um and and i guess mm-hmm. I, it was i think that's actually a very poignant thing to end a movie on if that's what you're focusing on is like police brutality or just like the the relationship between police and criminals and how the the, the lines can be blurred a lot um but here it just is like it just feels like it's slapped on at the end of the movie. So I was going to, I was, what's your take on, on that ending monologue? I, I was, I took it very much as a, and I, I can't prove this, but I just felt like maybe there was a conversation somewhere along the way. Like, you know, we're going to have to make a statement that says like, 
crime should be punished and sometimes it's not pretty but look what we have to work with here you know it's very much that and it's how it felt to me i was like i hope you can put your head down and not saying all that police commissioner go right ahead but but i i tried to put myself back in that that mentality like i'm thinking about like my grandparents age and you know this is when they grew up and even my my folks they were younger in the 1950s but they grew up in in that era and that's just how it was like you just didn't question the methods of of authority figures you know it really it was their generation when they became teenagers that started doing that and it wouldn't be for another almost 20 years before our society started outwardly doing that um and so I felt like that was one of those ham fisted. Um, but in the end, evil is punished, you know, moments and the end. I'm like, yeah, well, the end. It yeah. certainly is punished. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, yeah, it may, maybe not to the extent it deserved, because I, I do think you, you hit on it before, too. And they talk about Emmerich and they're kind of making a joke like, oh, he could have got off easier or whatever. Like, well, you didn't give him that impression. <laughs> like you gave him the idea that he had nowhere else to go. And again, that calls into the the question and we're talking about a piece of fiction here too so we can't like this is really how it was necessarily but obviously that draws from some inspiration right is that you know cops have always done that police do that all the time uh, it, 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 attorneys will do it too when they feel like they're trying to get a confession out of someone or a plea deal they they present you with options of like do you want to lose huge or you want to lose huger you know and it's uh, and when they've got you you know and it's what do you do and you know desperate people do desperate stuff but no i i felt like that was very much one of those like i said um well uh it may not be pretty folks but this is what we have to do so deal with it yeah it it, it, it just like i said for a film that was a little bit more nuanced and uh i mean in in at least it's uh depiction of like the main characters and their motive like the nuance of the motivations of why they're participating in this caper as they call it um maybe not as nuanced as uh like the tapestry that is like sunset boulevard and other noir films it's uh it just felt very like yes the ends justify the means the end and you're like oh but that's not really what the movie's about so that, it was a little jarring like i said i think the monologue is better in a different movie because I think there is like that is something to debate about, um, but the movie's not about that. So yeah, no. like you said, it, it just feels like a tacked on. Uh, let's, just, let's just throw that on there. The end. Uh, so, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean that's Asphalt Jungle, and I guess does the jungle win in the end, Jay? I mean, <laughs> yeah, it swallows you whole. I mean, that's the thing is that there's no there's uh, there's no getting out of it, or the way to get out of it is to not do the cheap way out i think is the the method but as far as for a movie man oh this was such a a joy to just partake in and watch and i mean i really thought we hit something high with double indemnity last time and that's uh, to tease it for folks that's a movie that's going to appear on a film strip episode somewhere (laughs) down the line and it won't be this conversation we had we're actually going to review it on our team because i've talked enough about it and people listened to your last episode wanted to talk about it again but uh, yeah this is one that just raises that bar a little higher and and again i'm I'm almost ashamed to sit here and go like why did it take me all these years to watch this because goodness gracious how did i miss this uh, but I'm so glad I've seen it now and definitely something I will go back and revisit again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is what's uh, really fun about this journey is I just feel like with every decade, the film, not, I don't say quality. I just feel like the bar keeps getting raised and raised. And I'm like, are, how are we going to top this? Like, how are we going to top the next film? And, and, and inevitably it always is getting top. So like kudos for the, the selection that you've been picking here, Jay, because mm-hmm. every week is just, 
or every uh, episode we do of like Journey Through Decades just gets more and more fun. And I think up at this point, uh, I think I've only seen one or no two of the movies, and that's like the the two the twenty two thousands and twenty tens. So I'm pretty sure if I have to double check our list, which you know, I'm going to make sure that I watch the correct movies mm-hmm. too. Um, I'm pretty sure I haven't seen any of the remaining movies. So I'm very be fun. Yeah. yeah. I'm very, it's, it's, I'm very much looking forward to getting to that and just being okay. Like the theme so far has been films have been just taught, like just being better than the last, which is, you know, something to say for these films that we're watching. Um, yeah, my, and- Oh yeah. Well, just just to tease it too. Well, we'll, when we get to the 1960s, we're gonna we're gonna veer a little bit away from noir for a bit and do the first romantic comedy of our (laughs) of our selection, and maybe the only one I would say, uh, because we haven't quite picked the 80s and the 90s one yet. But uh, because we've been swapping stuff in and out, but uh, that'll be a different twist. But it's one with a twist, and I I I don't know the movie, but I know the play and have seen the play and, and, and participated in, in some activities around that. I'll tell more next time about that, but I, I won't say anything more. We'll tell you what the title is. So we'll tease it for that, <laughs> but it's, but yeah, I, that, that'll be a fun thing to get into. And then uh, the seventies one, I know I haven't seen, we'll get back to noir land of that one. And then uh, the, really the 2000 to 2010 one uh, that we, we are going to do those. You helped pick those out. And uh, we're, we're surprised I hadn't seen them. And when we reveal those people will go like, Holy cow, how'd you miss that? But you know, it, it, we're, this is all about covering up the blind spots. So here we go. <laughs> more one of them i think 2010 i get like that i think is a little bit more like yeah okay if you didn't see Mm -hmm. that that's fine but definitely like the 2000s movie i'm i was very surprised that you hadn't seen that um Mm -hmm. and we'll talk about that in you know in a few months when we get there but um but yeah so my closing thoughts of uh, asphalt jungle yeah definitely very very much enjoyed it i didn't know where it was gonna go um i did really like the the um just the focus of the the nuance of you know it's a little bit more than just the money yeah, yeah we're doing this for money but the reasons are a little bit more um purposeful than just money and greed um mm-hmm. uh, yeah I, obviously i think I, I really did appreciate the cinematography the uh, kind of the lack there of score because it really just engrossed me in the film and uh yeah just seeing Again, seeing the homo- or seeing the, the the ground foundation work for films that I love, like in the more modern turn of cinema, like the '90s, early 2000s, even like today. Um, so, my my letterbox review, I gave Asphalt Jungle a three out of five stars, and my out of ten, I'm going to give it a seven out of ten. So, again, a solid recommendation. Um, really did enjoy the movie, and uh, yeah, I gotta start looking at like Criterion and getting these on uh, into my collection. Oh yeah, de- definitely. These are ones that have in physical media for sure. And and I, you know, as far as as rating on this, I would give this an eight out of ten as well. Um, and I and I, I mean that's high praise, you know. And and is it's just a infinitely watchable movie and for so many reasons you can just watch it for the cinematography alone um and the subtle music and all of the stuff in it the sound design is amazing or you can watch it for the actors chewing scenery and watching a a force like sterling hayden that's probably a forgotten actor nowadays people don't i never hear him mentioned in so many things but if you go back and watch his filmography and some of the stuff he did man that guy was a force and probably an underappreciated one when, when it's all said and done. So I'm it's glad not, I got to enjoy he, this one. Because he's yeah. been in like 
major role. Like he, you know, he's so in the Godfather, Doctor Strange, Love. Yeah, I, I mean, think people probably probably are gonna mostly remember him from from the Godfather because he's so good. It's that corrupt police captain, and his death is so memorable, visceral, uh, right? But I, sadly, the 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 thing I saw him in was Nine to Five. He has a cameo in that Dolly Parton, <laughs> Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda movie. He's great in it, by the way. That's a, that's a that's an underrated gem too. Someday we might have to just do that one just for random reasons. Yeah. But uh, I can't claim I haven't seen it though. I grew up with it. <laughs> but but I mean, you know, that's where I saw him. And then I've even seen him in stuff like Johnny Guitar and some of the mm. westerns he did and all this stuff. But he's he's always so good, and so it's neat to go back and and visit him. And I would tell people like, if you just want to go down a rabbit hole of an actor from a bygone era, that's one to to do that doesn't get brought up the way that like Cary Grant and some of these other Jimmy Stewart and these others do. And it's a shame because he's he's a really really strong actor. And if you read about him, his life is pretty fantastic too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I guess that concludes our our conversation about Asphalt Jungle. Jay, do you want to uh, plug all your shows? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, you can find me over at Filmstrip Podcast. Um, just search Filmstrip Podcast wherever podcasts are found. We're three hundred and thirty plus episodes now. We did some fun stuff this summer. We did a couple of back to back theater release things. We did Top Gun Maverick, and then we did uh, the David Cronenberg flick uh, Crimes of the Future, and uh, oh. got to have a lot of fun with that. That that one's out. Uh, and then we've got some more fun stuff planned for the rest of the summer. we got a big, fun thing coming up in August that I'll, I'll just tease right now that's going to... We're going to veer back into our horror uh, series stuff and drop a very sweaty horror series, I will say. <laughs> I'll just tease it as that. And then uh, Ron and Lindsay and I are already planning stuff with uh, you know the, the, the three of us are doing, and also bringing on a cavalcade of guests like yourself and Michael Scott from Action for Everyone and Corey McCullough and you know Carmelita Velvet McCoy several, several others that you've heard we and, and Jerry from Totally Red Christmas the folks from the podcast we we have a lot of good pod friends and we like to bring them on and we've been doing this for gosh you know over 12 years now and at this point it's it's clearly just to have fun and talk oh, yeah. with our friends about movies and, and stuff and you can go through our big archive I mean, we, we used to do a lot of series and stuff and now kind of our thing is just to pick stuff that we we want to talk to people about and have conversations about and geek out over even if it's totally awful and bad and just have fun laughing about it or if it's something that's actually legitimately cool and good like Top Gun Maverick and Crimes of the Future uh, for different reasons but also for the same reason if you listen to those reviews uh, hear me tease that but yeah I always appreciate a chance to plug that Mike and, uh, and thanks for uh, letting us do that and uh, letting me be a part of this here over on Amateur Tours oh yeah of course Jay it's, always, it's, like I said, it's always a blast love talking movies with you man and uh, everyone thanks for joining in on this conversation having fun with us and as always we'll see you next time Thank you.